maybe you've had somebody offer you something to eat. Maybe it's it's a cookie or you go to somebody's house or they make you something and you take a bite. I've, I've had times where you, you take a bite, that first bite of something you don't know is always a little nerve wracking, isn't it? And you take a bite and you're like, that's, that's fantastic. And they say to you, yes. And you say, why is it so good? And they say, it's because it is my secret recipe. Have you ever heard anyone say that? They're like, I use a secret ingredient. And it always makes me nervous. And sometimes I'm just afraid to ask what the secret ingredient is. But you, you know that. You've had that experience. In McDonald's for years, it was a secret what the special sauce was on the Big Mac. And I don't want to know, just to be honest. And then you take like Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC. They have their secret recipe. It's the 11 herbs and spices. The legend is that the recipe, the original recipe, is written and it's in a vault somewhere in Kentucky. And that the, when the spices are made, mass-produced... They're made at two different factories, those 11 herbs and spices, in two different places so that no one knows the full recipe. I think you just call both places and then put it together, right? But I don't know how that, how that works, but it's a secret. There is, to certain things, this secret recipe, kind of this special sauce. And what I want to talk about today is, is the special sauce, the secret recipe to your relationships, to your experience in the workplace, And in particular, we want to apply it to the church today and what the Bible has to say about this this special sauce that will make all the difference between whether something struggles or whether it thrives, whether something is declining or whether it's succeeding. And the Bible gives great emphasis to this thought and this idea that we're going to call kind of the secret sauce of the church today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We started a new series of messages last week that we are calling Body Building. In Ephesians chapter 4... You and I are referred to as the body of Christ. And Paul says to us several times that we are to build up the body of Christ. We're going to talk about how do we build ourselves up both as individuals and then corporately as the church. And we're going to, we're going to spend uh, several weeks in this passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. And what Paul says to us at the very beginning is that it's critical that we, that we do this, that we understand this. He urges us not to miss what he's going to say to us in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 beginning with verse 1. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So he's talking to those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. He's talking to the church and he makes this very impassioned plea to them. He says, as a prisoner from the Lord, then he says, I'm sitting here in prison. And as I am suffering for the truth that I've said to you, don't miss what I've told you about, but live your life worthy of this calling. Don't let your life be meaningless. Don't let it slip by. Put effort to this. Give life to this. Live your life worthy of the calling that you have received. Strive for that. Struggle for that. Have that. And then he takes the next five verses and gives to them kind of this secret sauce for the church. Look at what he says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he spends the rest of Ephesians chapter 4 applying this idea. Paul says that the secret sauce, the special ingredient, if the church is going to thrive, if your home is going to thrive, if your life is going to thrive, is this idea of unity. 
And we use this word quite a bit, and we talk about it in the church, but it's a critically important thing for us to recognize. And so I want to take this morning and talk about these verses, what Paul says to us about unity, and why it is so incredibly important for the church to recognize and to have and to hold on to this idea of unity. If you are struggling in certain areas of your life, in your marriage, in the workplace, in your Christian encounters, it may be that what's missing is this secret ingredient that Paul writes to us about unity. Now, before we walk through this passage in Ephesians 4, I want to I highlight for you why this is so critically important. So if you have your Bibles, hold your place in Ephesians 4 and turn with me to Psalm 133. And we're just going to do a quick walk through this. And we, we've talked about this before in the past. But I just want you to see why unity is so critically important, why it matters so much in the church. Psalm 133 tells us why unity matters. Why do we talk about it? Why do we call it the secret ingredient? Psalm 133, listen to what the psalmist says. Verse 1. He says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. First thing about unity is that unity brings pleasure. It brings pleasure to us. If you've ever been on a, on a, on a project where people are not unified, but where there's discord and where there's challenge and where there's struggle and people don't get along you just know it's just it's just not much fun but if you're working together as a team it gives a whole different synergy it's a catalyst it gives a different dynamic it's so much better if you're working together than if you're working against each other and so unity brings pleasure god says that's the way it's designed and how good and pleasant it is when god's people dwell together when they live together when they have unity It goes beyond this. Unity brings pleasure. Verse 2 of Psalm 133. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now this is an image that's that's lost on us in, in 21st century America. But in Old Testament times, he would be talking about the priesthood. Aaron was the first Old Testament priest. And when a priest first came out into their role, what they would do is they would be anointed and they would take the anointing oil and they wouldn't just kind of put a little on the priest. You know, the Bible says that when we pray for folks, especially for healing, that we're to anoint them with oil. And if we were to anoint you with oil, we just, we just do a little, it's like a little dabble, do you, right? It's not a, it's, we, don't, we don't pour it. But in the Old Testament, they'd take that oil and they would pour it on the priest. And it would, it would come down, and it wouldn't just be on his head, then it would run down, and it would drip, and it would ooze. And some of you are like, that's gross. But it was a symbol of God's presence, and of his empowerment, and of his strength, and of his calling. The word we use is that it's, it's a symbol of his anointing. And unity brings anointing. This is what the psalmist is saying here. That when you have unity in the same way that the priest was physically anointed... Unity brings anointing to a life, brings anointing to a church, brings anointing to a home. There is this something about when God's spirit empowers us, when he helps us, when he gives us what we need to be effective, to accomplish his purpose. There's, there's anointing that comes and it comes with unity. Some of you, there's places in your life where you're struggling and you can't seem to move things forward. And there's like this challenge that you just can't overcome. And the source of that may be that you don't have unity in your life. And you wonder why it seems like you don't have what you need to accomplish God's purposes in your life. And it may be that in your home, 
It may be that in your workplace, it may be that in your Christian experience, you're lacking unity and that disunity has actually created a hindrance for God's anointing to come in your life. Here, here's a third thing. First, or Psalm 133, verse 3. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now, Hermon is not some guy in the Old Testament, Right? Hermon is a place, and it was a place that was known for its lushness and its greenness and for this dew that would come and would create a place that was fertile and that was beautiful. And he's saying it's as if that kind of life were on Mount Zion, which is God's place. It's where God's people are. And he says that there's this this life and this lushness and this richness that comes to God's people. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. A third thing, unity brings blessing. Unity brings blessing to your life. Again, if you're wondering why you're struggling, if you're wondering why it just seems like maybe I'm just, I'm just not blessed in my work, I'm just not blessed in my marriage, I'm just not blessed. Sometimes we wonder why. It's because there may be places where there's a lack of unity in our life that creates these barriers so that we can't know God's blessing. So in the church, in your home, in your marriage, in your relationships, if you have a lack of unity, it can rob you of God's pleasure and his anointing and his blessing. Do you see why unity is, is the special sauce it's the secret ingredient to whether something struggles or whether it thrives and so let's go back to ephesians chapter 4 where we were just a moment ago and i want to show you based on ephesians chapter 4 three things that unity is three things that unity is for us and we're going to start with verse 4 and then we're going to work our way backwards because I want you to understand what unity is, why it's so important, and then how we can have it. And so we're going to talk about it today. Let's begin with this. We're going to talk about three things that unity is. Here's the first one. Number one, unity is based on what we share. Unity is based on what we share. And we're going to talk specifically today in, in many ways in our application about how we experience unity in the church. And that unity comes based on the things that we share. Now we get confused sometimes about where, where unity or fellowship or where connection comes from. Let me, let me give you just a couple of uh, cautions about where unity does not come from. One is this, unity is not based on looks. Okay, unity is not based on looks. Sometimes I think that if, if, you, if you look like me, if we look the same, then, then we're unified, right? But unity is not based on looks. Unity is also not based on likes. That if we look the same and we like the same things, then that's when we can be unified. See, you can look like me and you can like the same things as I like, then it's easy for me to be in unity with you. But if you look different, then that's a little different. And if you, if you like things that I don't like, you eat that, I don't eat that. You know, you have those challenges, then that can cause places where you lose unity. Unity is not based on what you look like. It's not based on what you like. Here's the third thing. Unity is not based on legalism. See, oftentimes in the church, we say, well, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And if you don't follow certain sense of rules, then you don't have unity. And that's, that's not the scriptural idea either. It's not based on what we do or what we don't do. Unity's not based on looks. It's not based on likes. It's not based on legalism. Let's talk about where unity comes from. Listen to what Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 4. He bases unity on what we do share, on what we have in common. He says this. Look at verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Now catch, catch this verse real quick. We're just going to roll through this. But he says that there's one body, one spirit, one hope. Seven times in these next three verses, you'll see the word one. And we are the body of Christ. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit who gives us our hope. One body, one spirit, one hope. And what he says is what we share in the spirit brings us unity. As the Holy Spirit works in our lives, what we share in the Spirit brings us unity. Then he goes on to say this in verse 5. He says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Who is, who is the Lord? If we were to give a name to the biblical uh, title of Lord, that person would be... You ever had that feeling where like you've been talking for 20 minutes and nobody's been listening? Have you ever, you ever had that awkward silence? So, good morning, Calvary. Want to welcome you today and uh, take your Bibles with me if you would, please. Okay, who is the Lord? His name is Jesus. All right, six of you are awake now. Okay, awesome. So here's here's how this works. He is the Lord, and our faith is in Him. And baptism is a physical symbol of who we are in him. So, get this, what we share in the Lord brings unity. Not just what we share in the Spirit, what we share in the Lord. We're going somewhere here, track with me. Then he says this in verse 6. He says that there's one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And now he talks about God, our Father. And what he says here is that what we share in the Father brings unity. Now what Paul's doing here is he's slipping some theology in. You didn't even see it coming. In verse 4, he said it was based on the Spirit. In verse 5, he said it was based on the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, God's Son. And in verse 6, he says it was based on God, the Father. So he talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he points us to this idea of the Trinity right there in those three verses. And his point is this. Your unity is not based on what you look like or what you like or even the legalism that your church might teach or your religious practices. He says what we share in God... In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the faith, that's where our unity comes from. That's where we find our basis for the things that we share. The truth is this. Unity comes from what we have in God and not who we are as individuals. It comes from our faith, our common faith, which means this. We don't create unity. God gives it. He brings it. And unity comes from what we have in God and not from who we are as individuals. I don't know a clearer way, and I'm not, I'm not working for a pep rally here, so, so help me out. But I don't know a clearer way to express it than this. There are multitudes of people across the nation, honestly, but especially right here in Ohio, who are anxiously anticipating tomorrow night's game, right? And they, amen, sister, yeah. And, and they are bonded together by this fact they are all a part of buckeye nation and they want to do some duck hunting right and that's that's the idea now here's how it works you you can live in different places and you can look in different ways you can have different kinds of experiences but there are people who are coming together and their cry their doctrine their theology is oh see that's it right we're bonded in that it doesn't matter who you are or what you look like. There's this one thing that brings us 
in place. And if you challenge that, then you challenge on the outside. Here's what God says, that we are bonded together by what God has done for us, by what he said to us. That's where our unity comes from. So these other things that get in the way sometimes, what someone looks like or how they're different from us or where they come from or what their spiritual experience is, if we can agree on the foundationals of this one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one spirit, if we can come to that point, then we can have unity. Does that make sense? Now, here's what we're going to do in the next few moments. I want to talk about this idea of unity, but it's easy for us to talk about unity in a broad sense. I'm hoping that in the next few minutes, I offend you just a little bit. Is that okay? We'll still be friends, right? Here's why. Because I want to challenge you to think about unity from the perspective of your own life and involvement and not someone else's. If you think about a situation in your life, be it in the church, be it in the workplace, be it in your home, where you are experiencing disunity, then it's easy for you to point the finger and say, well, it's that person, without turning it around and saying, where am I responsible? What is my part in this? I want to challenge you to look at yourself and not just say, well, she's the reason we don't get along. He's so full of himself, no wonder there's no unity. He may be full of himself, but what's your role? What's your responsibility? Here's, here's the other thing that's, that's fun about this. Is we get to talk about this today and this whole idea of unity. And I feel passionate about this. Because God has given us for this last season of time tremendous unity as a church. It's been a wonderful thing. And when you're in a season that you like, you want to preserve it, right? You want to extend it. You want to make it last as long as you can. Some of you are already done for winter to be over, aren't you? Because <laughs> a season you're not crazy about. Here's the truth. I love you. But it's only the beginning of January. We've got 12 more months of this, I think, in Toledo, don't we? It's winter. Feels like it. I don't know. It's not 12, but you know what I mean. But if you could change the season, if you could extend your favorite season, whatever it is, you would would extend it. Listen to what we're saying here today. When you have unity in the church, in your home, in your relationships, you want to extend it because it's the secret sauce. It's what helps things to thrive and not decline. So let's talk about this today. Let's put this into practice and challenge yourself to do this because it's that important. Here's, here's something. Let's talk about it from the church's perspective in just a minute. Paul stresses this. He says to them, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, do work to keep this unity in your life. He, he goes on to extend this. Here's why. Because he knows how the enemy can use disunity. Look, as a pastor, I don't want to fight about stuff. I want to enjoy the unity that God brings. There's one thing that I'm pretty committed that I'll fight for. And I'll fight for unity. That, that seems paradoxical, doesn't it? But it's the truth. Paul tells us to do this here in just a moment. And there's not room in the church or the work that God wants to do for us to miss out on this idea that he stresses and points us to so strongly. Now watch this. I know some people, and, and, and let me make kind of a, a bit of an analogy here. I know some people who have been really, 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 and and oftentimes through no fault of their own, they've been hurt in life. People have let them down, and they've betrayed them, and they've lost. So what happens then as a result is that when, when it's on them to show love to someone, to some person in some way, they're afraid to show love because they've never received it in a way where they haven't been hurt. And so I know some people that when there's an opportunity for them to succeed or to show love, they immediately back away or they check out before they even get to that place because they're sure that it's going to fail. For some of you, 
This again, this is me meddling just a little bit. Whether it was this church or another church, for some of you, you've had church experiences where there was disunity or you've been hurt. And so when we talk about unity, you either wonder if it can really exist or you're afraid to, to even try to experience it. And so you immediately push against that. And for some of you, what happens is instead of doing what you can to put some of the secret sauce on your spirit and your soul and your family or your home or your church experience, you're afraid of unity, so you push against it. And, and oftentimes what that causes us to do is just rehearse the stories of where we've been hurt in the past. So if you're more concerned about your story than you are your soul, then maybe this sermon is an opportunity for you to do some evaluation today. If you're more concerned about your story than you are about your spirit and your soul, maybe we need to do some evaluation. What does Paul tell us to do? Let's go back to verse 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. He says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's keep that verse on the screens for just a minute and and unpack it a little bit. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, make every effort. The words there mean this. Be aggressive. Be zealous. Work hard. Do what you need to do. It's not take it easy. He means this. Exert yourself to do this. In fact, the actual tone of those words is this. I know it will be difficult, but you do everything you can to make it happen aggressively pursue this be zealous make every effort realize this paul says it's going to take effort it's going to take work then he says to keep the unity of the spirit he doesn't say to create he doesn't say to make we already have the unity based on what christ has given us right if we'll land there if we'll recognize who we are in jesus christ and what you and i share not based on looks or likes or legalism but what god has done for us then we will keep the unity of the spirit it comes from him through the bond of peace so catch this paul says that there is unity that god has given to us it is our job to do the work to maintain it because it will be the bond that holds us together make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace and paul knew about bonds he's writing this from prison There's a good chance that he was in a spot where something was holding him down, where he was tethered in some way. But he's not writing it in a negative sense. He's writing it in a positive sense. And he's saying this, if you will make unity your priority, if you will work hard to keep it, and you do that through peace, then there is anointing and there is blessing and there is pleasure that comes. We've already seen that. So unity is that critically important that we don't want to miss it and so paul says we've got to put it to work let me let me give you an example an illustration of why this is so critically important i need two volunteers can i get anybody to volunteer did you two just volunteer because i told you you were volunteering earlier okay come on up jake and rachel come on up here come on up. i want you to uh to catch this for for just a minute jake we'll make you do the work how's that sound You'd have no idea what you're about to do. No, which is really fun because I can see the terror on your face. Just walk down this way, if you would, Jake. Just hold this. And then, Rachel, I'm just going to ask you to hold the other end of this. And, uh, and there you go. How's that? Okay, so we've got, we've got these uh, Christmas lights that are probably still in your house because it's been so cold. But here's, here's this, this string. Now, what this represents 
is that between us as believers, whether it be in the church, whether it be in your home, this might be a relationship that you have with a brother or sister in Christ. It might be a relationship that you have with your brother or your sister. It might be the relationship that you have with your spouse, just, just any kind of relationship. There is a bond that's between you that you have to maintain, Paul says, make every effort to keep this bond of peace. It's peace that's going to promote the unity that God's already given. Here's what happens. Two things. If you neglect that, like if I take this string of lights, you take off this little cover, and then it's got this little thing in there that uh, snaps the, the light bulb on there. Hang on a minute. I've never been electrocuted, but I've only tried this once before. Okay, so here's, so if anything happens, just read what's on that page and pray, and you're good. Yeah, yeah, you're good. It's easy. It's easy. You're, you're good. Um, what's that? Don't touch the mic. That's mine. Yeah, just talk loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good, thanks. Okay, so here's what you do. You've got this bond, right? But if, if the peace is compromised, if you lose this, watch what happens. First of all, the light goes out, right? So you've lost this relationship between the two of you because the unity's gone. Even more, though, now you can't see this light. The Bible says that we are the light of the world. Unity is expressed through our love with each other in whatever relationship or role that is. The Bible says they will know we are Christians by our love. When we lose unity, then we're no longer the light of the world. We're only confusing the world instead of showing them the light of the life of Jesus Christ, right? This is why the church in so many places has gotten a bad rap and even to a place of irrelevance because why would the world want to be like us when we can't even get along with each other? Does that make sense? So it's critical, Paul says, that if this is going to move forward, if you're truly going to be the light of the world, that you make every effort, work hard, he says, to keep, to maintain the unity that God's already given us. You have this look of fear in your eyes, like I'm going to make you do something. You have to stand on one leg. Do that. Just Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, so that you've got to work hard to maintain by keeping the peace. This is a critical thing. Give Jake and Rachel a big hand. Thanks, guys, for your help here today. Awesome, awesome. Rachel, thank you very much. Now, now catch this. Here's the second thing that Paul says to us about unity. Not only is unity something we share, but unity is kept by peace. Unity is kept by peace. This is the second thing that I want you to see, that I don't want you to miss. If you're going to keep unity, if those relationships are going to thrive, you've got to work hard to maintain peace with one another. Now, I want to I apply this to you and to your life. Let's take what Paul just said, and let's run ourselves through a little test. Have you ever heard any of these little tests, or you heard like little jokes that say, you might be a redneck if? Have you ever heard that stuff? Let me run this by you. You might be unity challenged if these things are true about you. And be willing to take a hard look inside as we think about this. Consider this. If you take more effort to stir up than to build up, you might be unity challenged. If you take more effort to stir up than to build up, you might be unity challenged. If, if you find more pleasure in talking about someone than in speaking words of life to someone, then you're busier stirring up than you are building up. And there's a good chance that you're not promoting unity. I know people that if we took those words, make every effort that Paul talked about, they make every effort to disturb unity and not to build up unity. Does that make sense? They're quick to point out this or that about the church or this or that about their spouse or this or that about. And instead of going to great lengths to stir up good things, they're stirring up bad things. And as a result, they're not building things up. You have the opportunity to choose. Here's a second thing. If you focus more on your agenda 
than God's agenda, you might be unity challenged. If you focus more on your agenda than God's agenda, you might be unity challenged. If you're not that interested in what God's word says is right, you just want to do what you find convenient or you think is right. If you're not interested in having that meaningful conversation, you just want to dodge it because you, you don't want to find yourself in an awkward place. If you're not willing to take some of the hard steps because it's not going to be easy for you, if you're more interested in what you want as opposed to what God wants, then there's a good chance that you're, you're unity challenged. Let me give you just a third thing. If you're more interested in principle than in peace, you might be unity challenged. If you're more interested in principle than in peace. Let me tell you what I mean here. What does Paul say? He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. But sometimes, I'm not interested in peace. I'm interested in the principle of the matter. You ever had a conversation with somebody? And they say, well, it's the principle of the thing. That's, that's what this is all about. I just want you to know that I'm holding to the right principle. No, you're probably not holding to the right principle. You're just holding on to the fact that you want to be right. And so you'll, you'll fight for that. Because you're more interested in being right than you are in being righteous. You're more interested in the principle of the thing than you are in this idea of having and maintaining peace. And there are times when if we're going to have peace in a relationship, we're willing to say, I'll set aside my likes or my looks or my preference or even my legalism because my relationship with you is more important. Unity is more important. The secret sauce in this thing so it will thrive is more important than me being right. Now let's talk about this for a minute because there's an interesting line that's there. Because you say to me, okay, Chad, that sounds good and that preaches. But what about if it's wrong? What about if, if, if in order to maintain unity, I'm being asked to do something that challenges me morally? It challenges me ethically. It, 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 it puts me in a place where I've got to do something that's against my conscience or maybe even it's just outright sin. See, understand this. I'm not asking you to sin in the role of unity. I'm not even asking you to step away from what challenges your conscience. Watch this. Be careful not to confuse unity with conformity. There's a difference between those two things. Be careful not to confuse unity with conformity. Paul says very clearly, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but instead, Romans chapter 12, he says we must renew our minds and be transformed, right? So he's not talking about what is moral or ethical or what is sinful. We're, we're talking about something different here. Don't confuse unity with conformity, but do understand this. There are times when we need to reject what some people call unity because it does put you in a place that's in opposition to God's word. We must be careful that a culture of tolerance does not ask us to have unity where there should be distinction. We must be careful that a culture of tolerance... Have you heard the word tolerance anywhere? <laughs> Look, I, I sh you need to tolerate that I, I can do what I want to do. I can think what I want to think. If I'm happy, it's okay. It doesn't matter what other people think. And especially it doesn't matter what other people do. Hey, if you want to do that and it works for you, that's cool. If you want to do the Christian thing, you want to do the Bible thing, or you want to do your own thing, it doesn't matter. We're tolerant of that. We must be careful that a culture of tolerance does not ask us to have unity where there should be distinction. And there's places, and unfortunately, folks, even in churches where people say, look, we're going to be unified on this because it doesn't really matter over things where God says, actually, it does matter. That's sin. So let's not, let's not confuse these things. We can't confuse a culture of tolerance and call something unity when actually it's destructive to our relationship with the Lord. So are we cool on all that? But understand this. There are things that just don't matter 
And whether that be in the church or whether that be in homes, let me give you this, let me give you this little bit of an illustration. Maybe it'll help. Many times I've got couples that'll sit on the couch in my office and if we're doing like premarital counseling before a wedding, so we'll have a conversation and something will come up. It's usually about his family or her family and it plays out this way. Well, his family's like this. And this is what they do. This is their tradition. This is this kind of thing. But when I go to that event, we're not going to do it like that anymore. Or he says, you know, her family does that. But when I go, it's not going to be like that. Because our kids, we're not going to, we're not, it's just not going to be like that anymore. And sometimes I want to say to them, hey, sweetheart, hey there, big guy, you're marrying into that family. That's not your family. That's their family. And I know you don't like it, but it's not sin. You're just full of yourself. So deal with it. Because it's not an issue of right and wrong. It's not an issue of life and death. It's just the rules of that house. It's just the practice of that place. And if you go in and you rebel against it just because you don't like it, you know what that means? That means you're going in and you're destroying unity. Let me give it to you this way. If you come over to my house, we started this years ago in just kind of our practice, especially when our kids were little. If you, you come over to my house and you come in, one of the things we'll probably ask you to do is take your shoes off. Because I don't know where you've been. And I don't want you tracking where you've been all over my house. So take off your shoes, right? And if you say to me, well, I don't, I don't take my shoes off. I was like, that, that's fine. <laughs> but this is my house. In my house you do. And you say, well, my feet stink. I said, that's cool. Go home and take a bath and come back. <laughs> right? Well, I got a hole in my sock. My big toe just whoop, comes right up through there. That's fine. Just cross your feet. I don't need to see it, right? Take your shoes off. Because that's the rule in my house. That's just that's what we do. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's not sin. It's not whatever. That's just, that's just what that is. But if you come in, you go, I'm not taking my shoes off. Then you've just kind of put this little wedge between me and you. Does that make sense? So if I come over to your house, I'm like, oh, I'm taking my shoes off. You don't take your shoes off. We've got this little challenge that's there. It does not matter. Take your stinky feet out of those shoes and enjoy my house. Because that's the, that's the rules of the house. Because if you're just so full of yourself that you, you rebel against that, something that doesn't matter, what you've just done is you've just destroyed unity in that house. Let me take it another example. Because it's a very cultural thing, isn't it? If you go to another culture, you honor that country's culture. You honor that nationality and that culture, even if you don't like it and it's not your culture. I remember several years ago, we, we took a team to South Africa, and one of the really cool things that we did was each, each day we got to eat in the church. They made a meal for us, and it was, it was just kind of a neat thing, and not always food that we liked, but it was, it was the food, and, and so we had, a, we had a bus driver. He would come, he would drive the bus, and then he would just kind of hang out all day, and then our team would do our things, and then this one night, they made us dinner, and they were doing this over and over again, and it was... Um, it was cool, and we got relationships with these ladies that were making the meal. So we'd laugh and this kind of thing. So it was Pastor Keith and I. I remember this so clearly. And we're walking through the line, and we're kind of laughing with the ladies and this kind of thing. And in this building, it was just the church was just this one concrete block building, and it was dark outside. And all they had was a, an electrical cord that ran from the front to the back with about four or five light bulbs just interspersed. So it was very dim inside of there. So we walk up, and all we can see is there's, there's pots of meat and, and that's stretching it, right? There's pots of meat. But these people had sacrificed. And they, they'd physically, financially, they'd extended themselves to be able to bless us with this meal. And so we're walking through the line and we walk up and I'm just like, hey, how are you? They're like, oh, it's good. So what do we have tonight? And the one lady, there's two ladies, there are two pots of meat. And the one lady goes, we got chicken livers, bloop. And we got chicken gizzards, the other woman says, bloop. And I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't do livers and gizzards. 
And at this point, Pastor Keith's mad at me because he'd have been happier if he just didn't know, right? (laughs) But you got the entire nation of South Africa looking at you. What are you going to do? You eat it. Why? I could not eat it and offend my friends. I could not eat it and disappoint them. But I love them. And it's their house. So I'm going to honor them. I'm going to respect it so that I can maintain unity. Does that make any sense? There's one lady on our team. We walked over and, and she didn't have a plate. And we were like, where's your, where's your food? What happened? She says, oh, the bus driver looked hungry. <laughs> Genius. It, I, just, I, was, I just wish I'd thought of that. It was just... <laughs> Why? I just want to maintain unity. Because otherwise it doesn't matter. So, okay, think about this for a moment. Paul says unity comes from what we share. Unity comes when we maintain peace. So we talked about where it comes from. We talked about why it's so important. Now let's talk about how we do it. This is why we work backwards to get to verse 2. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says, this is how we maintain it. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. What he says here is out of love, it's in love that all these things flow. And so number three, unity is love lived out. Unity is when love is lived out in our lives. For the, for the sake of time, we don't have a whole lot of time. Let's, let's just drive by these four things real quick that Paul says to us. He says this, in love, I will be completely humble. In love, I will be completely humble. This idea of humility is not one that you'll find in ancient Greek literature. Stuff that was written at the same time as the New Testament. Here's why. Because they didn't value humility. Their prize was in pride. The more prideful you were, the more respected you were. Really not that much different from what's happened in our culture, is it? We honor those who drive over top of others, who push others out of the way, who fight their way to the top. But what is honored here by Paul, outside of their culture and even outside of ours, is humility. See, when Jesus came, he flipped the world on, his, on its head. See, before that, if you were a servant, you were lowly. Jesus says, if you want to be great, then you choose to be the servant of all. And so he changed everything. Paul captures that. And for the first time in Greek literature, Paul writes and says, we are blessed if we are a servant. And so when he says, I will be completely humble, he challenges the whole paradigm. And he says, I will do things differently. Here's what we see. Humility is thinking the right way about yourself and others because of God's grace. Humility is thinking the right way about yourself and others because of God's grace. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's really just not thinking much of yourself at all. It's just not thinking about you. It's putting others first and realizing what your role is. When we realize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're, that we're really just sinners who are saved by God's grace, that the truth is that in that marital relationship, it's supposed to be this cycle of love and respect. That in the parental relationship, I'm going to love you as you honor me. It's, it's this process between brother and sister in Christ. It's, it's me showing God's love to the world. If I'll capture my role and my responsibility in who God's created me to be, then I realize I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about God. I'm humbled by his grace, and I recognize this. And if humility changes the way I think, watch where Paul says for us to go. He says that if we're going to maintain unity, we start by being humble. Here's the second thing. In love, I will be gentle. In love, I will be gentle. That's the second thing he says to us here. In love, I will be gentle. 
Last two weeks, we've, we've quoted that passage from Philippians 4 where Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness isn't just that I, that, I, that I pick up a kitten without squeezing it. That's not just gentleness. It goes beyond that. Here's, here's how Jesus said it. That same gentleness is the same idea when Jesus talked about meekness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Watch this. Gentleness is not weakness, but controlled strength. It is doing what is best for the common good. Gentleness is not weakness, but controlled strength. It is doing what is best for the common good. When, when our firstborn was a little guy in the nursery, there was a, we were living in Milwaukee, there was a lady in the nursery who was um, watching during one service, and we went to pick him up. And Ron said, I was Clayton. And Sandy said to her, she said, well, he was truck driving. <laughs> well, what's that mean? And she had coined this term for there's a certain point where kids in the nursery get to where they can start walking, they feel real good about themselves, so then they just drive over top of every other kid in the nursery, right? And they just knock them over. And so Clayton had learned how to be truck driving. And it wasn't just our kid. I think her kid was the one that taught him, right? I mean, that's the way, that's the way it works. And you watch that in kids. They get to a certain point where they're just all go. And some of us never grow out of that truck driving phase, right? We never learn the principle of putting others first. It's not that we're weak, it's controlled strength. And we realize that I'm going to honor you, I'm going to love you, even if it means putting myself second to the needs of the church, or of my spouse, or of my family, or of my friends, or in the work. Does that make sense? That's what gentleness is. So then this is what Paul goes on to say. He says, then in love I will be patient. In love I will be patient. Patience is this interesting thing. When do I lose patience? I lose patience when I don't like the way that I've been treated impatience is when i want to avenge the wrong that's come my way you made me wait too long you didn't treat me in the right way and i lose my patience so what is patience patience is a reluctance to avenge wrongs when i'm willing to say okay i'll let that go i'm gonna let that pass i'm gonna express grace and i'm gonna express forgiveness And if patience is the idea, then Paul makes it very practical for us. Fourth thing, in love, I will bear with one another. In love, I will bear with one another. That that phrase, to bear with, literally means to hold another up. To keep them from falling. To help them if they're struggling. There's a painful definition. Are you ready for this? When we bear with one another... We put up with another's faults and idiot syncrasies. Idiosyncrasies, sorry. Sorry about that. Whoa. Um, sorry. When we bear with one another, we put up with another's faults and idiosyncrasies, knowing that we have our own. That hurts, doesn't it? And I'm real quick to point out your idiot syncrasies, because you have them. Believe me, I've got a list, right? But I got my own. And so we bear with one another. So those things that your spouse does that drive you crazy, you, you put up with them. You bear with one another. You see those weaknesses in relationships because if you don't, you jeopardize unity. And if you jeopardize unity, then you're, you're eliminating this special ingredient that can cause your relationship to thrive. Now, now grasp this too. If you are the spouse that is doing the idiot syncrasy stuff, and you know it irritates your spouse, just stop, right? 
Because why? Because you want to preserve unity. You want to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why is this so important? Let me, let me communicate it this way. Here's an analogy that you, can, that you can all pick up on. Just this last week, right, we got our first kind of real little, little taste of winter. Kids go back to school. Most kids went back to school this last week, and they got out two or three days of school, right? Barely had to go back. When I was a kid and it snowed, we would walk to school uphill both ways through eight feet of snow, right? Raising a generation of little sissies. But here's, here's the... Here's, I'm just kidding. Here's the deal. What happens when the snow comes? Snowplow goes out. The trucks go out in the parking lots and on the road, and here's what they do. They do two things. On the front of that truck, it is moving the snow out of the way. It is getting it someplace where it's not going to hinder you from making progress. So it moves the snow out of the way, and then it drops the salt behind so that you have a secure place to drive that's not going to be a slippery slope for you to go down. Do you see what unity does? Unity goes before you. This is why you thrive with unity. This is why you know blessing and anointing and pleasure with unity. Because unity goes before you and it moves obstacles out of your way so that you can work together. And behind it, it gives you a firm place. It gives you a foundation that you can build the rest of your progress on. So next time you see a snowplow, let that be a reminder to you of God's unity that he can bring to your life, into your home, into your situation. And why is this so critically important in the church? Because I see something that maybe you don't always get the chance to see. I see it when it works, and it is a beautiful thing. I talked to a friend the other day who's going through a tough, tough time. And I'm, I'm looking for words because I'm the pastor. I've got all the answers. Just ask me, right? I mean, that's just the way it goes. And I got nothing to say to him. And then he says to me, you know, when I was talking to so-and-so, he said this, and it just was like life to me when he said that. And I thought to myself, I didn't even know those two guys knew each other. That's a unity in the church. Somebody that says, I, I, I didn't know how to do this, and I was kind of frustrated. I didn't know how it was going to go. And then I was talking to so-and-so in church, and they came along, and they helped me. There's something about that connection that makes us stronger. When you know that you have security that you can rely on in a relationship with your spouse, when you see that in, in your friendships, it's so critically important in the church that it moves obstacles out of the way. It gives you a, a firm place where you can stand. This unity is such a critical thing. I watched it in such a beautiful form yesterday. We had, a, we had a funeral here yesterday, and many of you would know Carl and Tammy Heiss, just some great leaders here at Calvary. And on Tuesday this week, their little girl Amber, 13 years old, passed away. We had the funeral for Amber yesterday. And Amber has had physical struggles for years, and um, we celebrated her life yesterday, and we celebrated the fact that Amber's in heaven, and that she's running, and she's never ran before. And she's singing, and she's never spoke before. And she's smiling because of God's grace in her life. And yet, we're grieving with the family that is experiencing a pain that, that no parent should ever have to face, right? But what I watched that was such a beautiful thing was I watched a unified church come along, a family, and make a huge difference in prayers and support. From a Facebook post that says, I'm praying for you, to meals that came to a house when they were desperately needed, to people who came alongside people in their darkest moment and bring life and bring strength. There's something beautiful about the church when it works. It wasn't just doing religious stuff. Yesterday had this, this secret sauce on it. Unity. And I want your life to be blessed I want you to know an anointing. I don't want you to struggle. I want you to know a pleasure that can only come, Psalm 133 tells us, when it's so good and pleasant, when people dwell together 
in unity. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? And I just got I got a simple question for you. I'm not asking you to, to diagnose this. I just want you to think, is there a situation in my life that lacks unity? Is it in my home? Is it in my marriage? Is it in the workplace? Is it some offense that I've just held on to for far too long? Is it something in the church? But I don't want to miss out and and I want to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I'm not asking you to take blame because there may be a very good chance that some leader hurt you or that some person lets you down or that some personality keeps keep stirring up instead of building up. I know that you might not take the blame, but you're in a place of of disunity and you want to take responsibility to do your part to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you would say, God, help me to do my part to bring unity to this situation. If that's you, you just raise your hand. God, would you help me to bring unity to this situation? And raise it, put it right back down. Just It's kind of a symbol between you and God. God, I need your help. God, help me to do my part to bring unity to this situation. Yeah, anybody else? Father, we come to you. And Lord, I, I pray first for the one who may be here, and, and part of the reason that they don't have unity and peace in their life is because they don't have unity and peace with you. And Lord, that their first step today is to choose to know you as their Lord and Savior. The only way to have unity with humans is to have peace with God. And so, Lord, today that they would accept your grace and your love and your forgiveness. And Father, I pray for those of us that raised a hand today and said, I'm in a situation that needs, God, that that secret sauce of unity on it. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to do our part to make the effort to maintain that unity that you bring by being people who preserve that bond of peace. God, that you'd help us to be humble. Lord, that you would help us in our humility to be gentle. God, that we would be patient and bear with one another and that you, by your Spirit, would then push those obstacles out of the way. Give us a firm place to move forward in our relationships, in our homes. God, would you preserve unity in this church as we look to you. We thank you for this gift that you have given to us. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.